It's good to gather together here this morning, and uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are just about finished uh, review or another look at uh, self-talk in, from a biblical perspective. I know when we first began this series, a couple of people uh, came to me and t- said to me something along the lines, oh, Paul, I hope we're not going to deal with psychology for the next six or seven weeks. And this isn't psychology, this is biblical theology. And uh, I think we um, need to read the Bible and learn from it in the various ways it describes um, humankind. If you have your Bibles, open them to uh, the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and uh, specifically to 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26. Actually, verse Samuel 26, verse 25, and then we're going to also read uh, 1 Samuel 27. And uh, just spend a little bit of time again looking at um, how the things that we say to ourselves impact our decisions uh, and our lives. First Samuel chapter 26, starting at verse 25. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You'll do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoan of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, Therefore, Ziklag has been long to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersherites and the Gerzatites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep the auction, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you been on a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jerimalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while, that he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. It's a strange text, isn't it? And uh, one of the things that I do want to start by doing is just point out the contrast between verse 25 and verse 1 of chapter 27. I just ask a question, how do you explain the transformation in David's thinking from verse 25 where he is blessed by Saul 
to verse 1 of chapter 27, where he needs to run from Saul to the land of the Philistines. It seems like something has cracked in David. Something has gone on in his thinking that um, needs at least an attempt of explanation. Because no sooner has he trusted in God to preserve his life from Saul and trusted in God to preserve the life of Saul in the cave, he's on his road to Gath in the land of the Philistines for the second time. And he's looking to find sanctuary amongst his enemies rather than amongst the people of God. And before we look at David and say, well, how could you do such a thing? Or before David comes down a few notches on our hero ladder and we think, well, I'm no longer going to look to David as I maybe used to do. Isn't this our Christian experience? Isn't our Christian experience marked by highs and lows? Isn't it marked by those times when we walk with great confidence and courage in the Lord? And then those times when our actions can't be explained at all by any relationship or connection with God. It's like we are Christian Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's. We're one thing one month and we're another thing another month. What seems clear to me as I read this text is somehow David has lost his mind. Not maybe literally, but he's not thinking straight anymore. There's something that has gone on in his mind that he's telling himself things that aren't true. The language that is taking place inside of him is silent speech is not language that is conforming to the truth that he knows. It's not conforming to the promises that God has given to him. He's telling himself things that are not true, things that are not right, and things that are not safe. His self-talk is going to lead him into a world of hurt. If you noticed in this text, it's bookended by self-talk. And in both instances, it's deceptive or misleading or wrong or potentially life-threatening self-talk. We read of David, and I've already read it, but I'll read it again, where David says in his heart, he tells himself, he says, now, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the border of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. That's what he's telling himself in his head. And it leads him into a dangerous spot. But then at the very end of the chapter, at verse 12, Achish, the king, it says there, and Achish trusted David thinking, this is explaining why he trusted David. What was going on, the cognitive process, the conversation that he had with himself that led him to trust David. And he says, he has made himself an utter stench to the people Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. That was misleading self-talk as well. So the passage is bookended by two accounts of inner conversations, sub-vocal conversations that could both lead to disaster. It's fascinating when you read this in contrast with Psalm 34, where there, David, we just read, David tasted and, and, and he realized that the Lord was good and he, God was a place of refuge for him. And then you come to a, a text like this and you realize that David is a completely different person, it seems. He's not trusting God. He's not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. He's afflicted and he's not turning to the Lord. It's easy to miss one of the most obvious things in this text, and I think, you know, when we read the Bible, we, we do this very often. We see all the things that are there, but we don't notice what's not there. Do you know there's not a single reference to God in chapter 27? 
There's not a single name of God. There's not a single instance in which David is said to have sought God or uh, to seek God. God is not consulted. God is not mentioned. Nowhere do we read about God's point of view or God's direction or God's influence in David's life as he makes this decision. This chapter is completely devoid of any theological instruction or help or interpretation. It's as though David is running on David time. God is not anywhere in his thinking or in his actions. As one person noted when they were summarizing this chapter and coming to explain it, they said, what can a godless text teach us? I love that chapter, what can, or that title. What can a godless text teach us? I think it's important that we um, just think about this a little bit because we've all been there in our lives. We've all find our, found ourselves in situations, even as those who have walked with God for many uh, years, and all of a sudden circumstances uh, hit us in such a way that we no longer look to God. We no longer are listening to God. We no longer ask for his guidance or ask for his counsel. We are arrogant. Maybe we think we, we have things in hand, and so we make decisions without asking God, as the, uh, Joshua did with the Gibeonites when they came and deceived them. And rather than asking God what are they about, they just proceeded by making a decision. Sometimes we do that. We get overconfident, or we get errant, or we're tired, we're exhausted, and we don't have the energy to consult God. And so it's not just... David, that makes these kind of mistakes, we are subject to missteps like this. It's fascinating to me when I come to a text like this, um, particularly a godless text, that there are um, a wide variety of approaches to trying to understand what the Bible says here. And you can read a a few um, uh, individuals who they write on this text, and they affirm David here. They say that David just acted well. That, that he just proceeded um, uh, in a right direction and in a white way, that David finds himself in a difficult situation without any obvious assurance from God, and he just decides, this is what I'm going to do. And he believes somehow, they, they would say here, that David is um, trusting God in his decisions. As such, they would write, this text illustrates ways in which believers are often forced to make important decisions without the benefit of a specific word from God. That's a real dangerous sentence. But what they're saying is that, yeah, David didn't hear from God. God was silent, so David just had to act anyhow. And they praise David for it. They say that, that as David moves to Gath in the land of his enemies, that he finds favor in the eyes of the king of Gath. That is a good thing, they would say. And that God honors David's decision to leave Israel, the place of God and the place of God's presence, and God honors him as he goes to the place of his enemies. The passage serves to remind us, they write, to submit our entire decision-making process to God and trust him to enlighten our God-given reason and logic and to guide us in the important decisions of life. And so David here, they would say, is, a, uh, is an example of a carefully making thoughtful decisions with the best critical facilities we have been given by God while trusting him to guide us along the way. So there are those that look at this text and say, yeah, go, David, You're, you did the right thing. You couldn't find God. You couldn't hear God. You had to make a decision. Well done. And then there's those on the other side who say this passage describes a man who has lost his way. He's lost perspective in the midst of despair and he acts without waiting for God. They would write something cracked in David's mind from the heights of a moral victory over Saul. He plunged into doubts that were to set him on a second time 
on the road to Gath, the place of his enemies. Such actions would shock us, they write, if they were not such a recurrent feature in our own Christian experience. How could he repeat the earlier mistake of going to the land of his enemies and being in big trouble, and now he does the exact same thing again? Why did he abandon what he knew to be the will of God, the promise of God that God would bless him in the land of Judah, God would preserve him from Saul's attempts to kill him, and God will eventually put him on the throne? How could he throw all that aside and say, I'm going to go run and hide in the land of the Philistines? Why is it David who now plays the fool? Two completely different perspectives on a particular section of scripture. One suggesting David had to get on with life, God may be silent, but God will honor his decisions. The other suggesting that David acts foolishly without any thought of God. I think I land somewhere in the middle there. At this point, David has been on the run for Saul for many, many, many months. In fact, the previous nine chapters describe David as he is fleeing from Saul's relentless pursuit to take his life. He'd even left his family in Moab to be looked after by the king of Moab while he sorted stuff out with Saul. Saul was relentless, and even though David again and again demonstrated his loyalty to Saul, Saul kept after him. And in fact, you can read in chapter 24 and chapter 26 of 1 Samuel how twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't take that opportunity. In all of that, David trusted the Lord. But you come to this place, and I think we've come to these places in our lives where you're tired. You're weary, you're worn out. It appears that David just was not up to one more battle. He couldn't take one more conflict. He wasn't up to one more moral dilemma as his enemy's life was in his hands. He knew that the history of Saul had come again and again and again like waves on the shore of an ocean. They just keep coming and they just keep coming and they just keep coming. And David is maybe saying, it was, I can't take the pressure anymore. I can't go back to Judah. I can't face the armies of Saul any longer. I just need a break. And so whether he was in a place that some people call the danger of success and the letdown that follows a big event or a key spiritual victory, and it was, he had just saved Saul's life again. And some of us has experienced that the elation of an incredible success, it might be a business success, it might be a hiking success to the top of a particular mountain. They often say that one of the most dangerous times in a hiker's life is after they summit, because all of a sudden they let down their guard. And that can be the same if you've pursued something and you put all your energy into it, and all of a sudden you've succeeded, and now you've got this time where if you're not careful, you will do or get yourself involved in things that you shouldn't. So maybe David is just at this dangerous place of uh, one success and he's now working out his feelings and his response to that success or whether he's just tired of the battle, I'm not entirely sure. But as one individual, right, when people are tired, temptation seems like a cool drink and sin like a good night's sleep. 
come to this point in the text and you realize David's not looking for God. He's not inquiring after God. Something has gone on in his heart and he's, he, he's disassociated himself from God. And sometimes really, really difficult circumstances can do that to us. If you are familiar with the story of um, the people of Israel when they were under the oppression of the Egyptians, at one point Moses came to them and told them, listen, do this and God's going to deliver us. And it says they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Sometimes you are just so beat up, so afflicted, so despairing that you can't listen to God and you don't have the energy to seek God. I wonder if that's where David is at in this text. So as I come to this text then, I approach it sort of in, the, in this sort of direction. I say, on balance, I think the text is sympathetic to David and his difficulty, and yet it presents him as wrong. I think the text understands David and understands the dilemma that he's in and the situation that he's facing and yet it's not willing to justify his conduct. And I sympathize with David. I, I get that. Um, I'm thankful that God is gentle with David and that this text is gentle with David, but it doesn't let him off the hook. And so as we look at this, we, we see the danger of the way he talked to himself. And I think it's important that we, that we wrestle this through because um, the sentence uh, in chapter one is 50 English words. It just, it's a summary of the conversation that he had in his head, which is behind the decision that he made to go to Gath. The point is that 50 words determined the next 16 months of his life. And it's what I've been saying again and again to us that the Bible describes again and again that that. All of our actions first come from our thinking and the things that we tell ourselves. And sometimes there are no consequences from that. Sometimes there can be long-term consequences from that. And here again, 50 words that he spoke to himself determine the reality of the next 16 months of his life. That is the power of self-talk. And so I think what David is trying to resolve in his head is this question or this, this statement. If, if I can just do something, if I can just get away from the situation, then Saul will then give up hunting me throughout the ter territory of Israel and I will escape him. That is what's in David's, I think the center of his thinking. I just need to get away from Saul. I just need a break. I just need a rest. I just need a good night's sleep. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of these moral dilemmas. I'm losing sight of God. God doesn't seem to be listening to me or answering my prayers. I just need a break. And that's a real dangerous place for any of us to be in our Christian experience. Sometimes it can be you have been suffering with a physical ailment, ailment for such a long time and God hasn't answered your prayer, God hasn't healed you, and you decide to go on a path without consulting God, without listening to God, that will lead you into trouble. Sometimes it is in relation to relationships. And I've seen this before in, in the lives of people that for many, many months and even years, somebody has been seeking a spouse. And the Bible is very clear that we should only marry in the Christian faith. Now, if there's six billion people in the world and 
3 billion of them are women and a certain amount of them are Christians. There's a lot of choice for a young man and a young woman. But the Bible says of all the choice, just make sure that they are a child of mine. But I've seen people who have waited and waited and finally they tell themselves, I'm never gonna get married if I just don't find a man or a woman. And they get married and it causes no end of grief for them. So we get to these points of desperation or we get to these points of affliction and all of a sudden we forget God's word, we don't listen to God's word, we don't wait for God's voice and we make decisions that will affect us for years to come. And so what, what, just, just unpack this a little bit with me, David's conversation with himself that leads to this 16 months of sort of a wilderness experience. His first comment is, now I shall one day perish at the hand of Saul. That is his self-talk, but that is not true. He's not speaking truth to himself. He has left God out of his conversation. He's saying, one day I'm gonna be swept away by Saul. One day I'm gonna be killed by Saul. Do you think that's true? Well, it's not. God has promised him that he will one day be on the throne. His wife had told him, listen, don't be foolish and kill Nabal and all his men because God has said you will be on the throne one day. He had been anointed as the king of Israel even though he hadn't sat on the throne yet. He had promises of prophets. He had promises of people. He had an encouragement of, of Saul's son to say, you will be king one day. And yet he tells himself, one day I'm gonna perish at the hand of Saul. This isn't the David that you read of in Psalm 42 and 43, when he's despairing and he's downcast, and he says, why so downcast, my soul? Why disquieted within? Hope in God. I will yet praise him. He is the ever-present God. David, in that particular circumstances, spoke truth to himself. He said, yes, I'm feeling bad. Yes, I'm feeling down. Yes, I'm despairing, but God. Here, there is no but God. Here, all there is is one day Saul is going to kill me. Or it's not like David in uh, chapter 30, a few verses later, when he's coming out of this experience and his own group of men and, uh, uh, and, and the company of people are, are so ticked off and are so despairing and they're so distressed that they're talking of stoning him. And so what does David do? It says he encouraged himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He spoke truth to himself about God's hand on his life. But here, David has nothing left in the tank. He's lost sight of God. He doesn't have the ability or the willpower to turn himself back to reflect on the promises of God, on the truth of God, on the character of God. And he slipped into godless self-talk. I'm gonna die at the hand of God of Saul one day. Charles Spurgeon commented, in every other action of David, you find some hint that he asked counsel of the Lord. But this time, what did he talk with? Why would the most deceitful thing that he could have found? His own heart. Talking with yourself and leaving God out of that conversation is a very dangerous thing to do. And it opens up to us paths that will lead us away from God, not back to God. How crucial it is that we constantly propagandize our souls with truth, with the promises of God, with the character of God, 
with the hope that God gives us and that we remind ourselves again and again, this is what I might be thinking, but this is true. The second thing that you see if you open this is not only has he left God out of it, but he says, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. That is just bizarre. There's nothing better for me than that I should leave the people of God and go live with my enemies. He's lost all optimism. He's living in a world of pessimism, so to speak. He's calculating the law of averages, human averages, not divine averages. He's saying that eventually, one day, Saul is going to trap me. Eventually, one day, I'm going to be sleeping in a cave with my men, and Saul is going to find out, and he's going to surround the cave, and he's going to light a fire, and he's going to smoke me out. I'm, I'm one day, just one day, it's going to happen. Often, despair leads us to those kind of conclusions. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've said to yourself something like, well, there's nothing better for me than to? And it's a really dangerous way to finish a sentence if you've left God out of that thinking. Well, that's where David is at. He says, there's nothing better for me to do than to leave the people of God and to go reside with my enemies. Do you think that's ever a wise decision? Do you think it's ever a, a good thing to, to find a hobby or to do something that you love that keeps you away from God's people on the Lord's day? And all of a sudden your habit becomes being away from God's people and being away from those who don't know the Lord and avoiding being with the people of God. Do you think that's ever a good conclusion? Well, that's exactly what David did here. And then there's this irrationalism that comes out in his thinking. So he, he's saying, um, he says to himself, well, one day I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul. Lie. There's no better place for me to be than in the land of Gath. Lie. And then he says, there's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking my life any longer within the borders of Israel and I escape out of his hand. How, how could that be a good thing for him to go to Gath. How in the world would it be a better choice for David to live in one of the main cities of his enemy, in the land of his enemies, than to live with the people of God or at least be in the land of God? David's thinking had caused him to lose sight of God. It had caused him to stop listening to God. It had overwhelmed the voice of God and the promises of God. In fact, David is about to enter into 16 months of, I would say, godlessness because of the mistruths that he was telling himself about his circumstances and about his God. And so these are the actual consequences of his thinking. And this is, this is what I, I, I'm just encouraging us to work through. It's always true that what we tell ourselves and repeat to ourselves over and over will eventually work itself out into our decisions. And so we see this in David. 
we get a glimpse how his inner world works itself out into his outer reality. And so it breeds this false sense of security for David. David goes to Achish of Gath. Now, did you get that? Do you understand where David is fleeing to? In 1 Samuel 17, 4, it says, the champion from the armies of the Philistines, Goliath from Gath, was taunting Israel. Do you understand that? David won the victory over Goliath months and months, a few years previously. Goliath was one who taunted the Israelites in their confidence in God. Goliath was from Gath. How, how could it be a wise decision of David to say, I'm gonna go live in Gath? Particularly when he has hidden somewhere this XL sword that he had got that was Goliath's sword. Where is his head at? But if you're only listening to yourself and not talking to yourself, there's a good chance you'll end up in Gath. More than this, David put his friends in jeopardy, his family in jeopardy, because he brought them all also into the land of his enemy. And his conclusion was right, though. When he got there, Saul would give up hunting him and would escape. And that's what happened. Saul did not pursue him any longer, the text says. So then you've got to ask yourself, does that make it right? The fact that the result of his decision was a positive result, does that make the decision a good decision or a godly decision? I think we need to be very careful that just because something works out doesn't mean that it is right or doesn't mean that it is pleasing to God or doesn't mean that it's in keeping with the truth of God's word. The whole scheme of David to move uh, his whole company of people into Gath was a masterstroke from a human perspective. And even if it is um, not faithful, it certainly has been successful But David's in a foreign land and he's serving a foreign king or a pagan king. And he's away from the people of God and he's outside of the presence of God. You tell me, where is the security in that? Where is the rightness in that? Where is the affirmation of God in in a decision that leads to that place in an individual's life? There's that saying that comes from the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is death. This certainly seems like a right decision and it all worked out right, but that doesn't make it a right decision. Then there's the unhealthy loyalty. You see that in here in a number of places that David calls himself a servant of Achish. And another place, Achish says, well, David is my servant now. How, How could that be a good thing? Wasn't David a servant of God? Wasn't David God's servant? Didn't David commit himself to serving the Lord of the, of, of, of the um, armies of Israel? And in here he is now a self-described servant of a pagan king. How could that be a good thing in David's life? His deception works all too well, we will find out, because of his deception, 
Finally, Achish says, well, look at David. For these last 16 months, he has, he has done all this slaughtering. He has all this killing. He's made himself odious in the sight of the people of Israel. So I'm going to invite David to be my personal bodyguard as we now go fight against the Israelites. Talk about David being in an awkward position now. And then there's the compromise, worldly compromise that he found himself in. If you go to the world, you will find yourself embracing the world's way of thinking. And what was that way of thinking? Well, David went out and he slaughtered people wholesale. None of it with the command of God, none of it with the instruction of God. All of it because he didn't want anybody alive to tell Achish what he was about. And then he would come back to Achish and he'd lie to Achish. So his, his, his world was a world just was morally turned upside down all of a sudden. He's now wholesale killing people and he's lying about it to the king. How can that be a good outcome of a godly decision? When we leave God out of our self-talk, the custom of our lives will not be pleasing to the Lord. That's what it says in verse um, uh, 11. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the land of the Philistines. He embraced Philistine practices and Philistine morality. How can that be a good outcome of his life? And so David had turned away from God and God was no longer in his thoughts. God was no longer in his conversation. He had stifled the voice of God. He had stifled the voice of the promises of God. He was opposing God at, at, at the very least actively and certainly passively by challenging God's truth and by ignoring God's truth and by saying, no, the promises of God mean nothing to me. He was devising plans for himself without the consultation of God and the guidance and the help of God. It's like he was smarter than God. It was like he knew better than God. It's like, well, if God's not going to act in my life, then I have to take things into my own hands. And it led him into 16 months of darkness. He was at the point where only the grace of God could save him. And thank God he is a God of grace. Do we not? Do we not thank the Lord that when we take missteps and when we take wrong paths that God in his grace and his mercy has an incredible way and power of bringing us back to himself. And I think with David, it started when all of a sudden he found himself in a no-win situation. The king had now so endeared himself to David and David to the king, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that David was now invited to be the king's personal bodyguard as they went to take on the Israelites. What was he going to do? If he fought with the king, then he's slaughtering his own people. If he abandoned the king, then he would be considered a traitor. How would you extricate yourself from that? Well, God, in his wonderful grace, put it into the heart of Achish's commanders to question his wisdom in having David along. And that opened the door for David to reorient himself and to bring him back into the path where he inquired and talked to the Lord. In fact, you can read in chapter 30, 
just days after he had left the king's presence, how David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then how David uh, got Abathar, the priest, to inquire of the Lord on his behalf what direction he should do and what action he could take. God, in his mercy, had brought David back into a place where David relied on the Lord and allowed the Lord to direct his thinking and his actions. I don't know entirely what was going on in David's heart for those 16 months. I can't imagine he was happy. I've seen people, and I've been in that circumstances, where I've left God for a while, and I'm miserable. I'm not happy. Life doesn't go well. It's not a path and a place that I want to be in or on. I don't know what was going on in David's head, though. Was his conscience bothering him? Or did he ignore it? Did he realize that he was in trouble and begin praying for deliverance? I think this much I can be sure of is though God never sent him to Gath. Because God never sends anyone to sin. David is human like you and I. But God was gracious in bringing him back into a place where David heard and responded to the voice of God. I need to talk rightly to myself in times of God's silence. I need to wait to hear the voice of God. I need to go back into scripture and remind myself of the promises of God. I need to wait. If God is silent, I need to wait until he speaks. If the path I am considering is going to lead me away from God, I need to drive myself back to God and say, God, really, is this the path that you want me to be on? Remind me of the path that you would rather me take. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. God will lead us. It's a wonderful hope of this text, not only for us as Christians when we stray and, and take paths um, that get us into trouble because our conversation is godless, but God in his grace brings it back. It is also a wonderful reminder to anybody who is here who, who might not have room for God in your thoughts or a place for God in your life, and you're making decisions with no consultation or consideration of God, that God is wonderfully gracious and merciful, and God will come to you and speak to you and will remind you of his person and of his power and of his grace and of his mercy and of his love. And he will say, there is a better path to walk. Trust in me. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will protect you. I will preserve you. And I will lead you home. There is no better place to be than in God's hands, listening to God's voice. Father, I thank you for your word today. And Father, I don't think we're overemphasizing a point, but we just get ourselves into a world of trouble when our conversation inside of ourselves ignores you, forgets you, pretends that you don't exist. Father, you know who amongst us are in this dangerous spot even now who are living and acting as though you don't exist, you don't care, your promises aren't sure. Father, would you bring us back to a place of safety? Would you bring us back to the place of your presence? Would you bring us back to the reality of um, truth, which is you exist, you care, you speak, 
You promise and we can trust you. Speak to our hearts, I pray, Jesus, in the moments of our despair, I ask in your name, amen.